God knows the events in our world, and I'm continually amazed how he aligns things. So today, we're going to talk about the end times. And if you've been paying attention at all to the news lately, you've probably been thinking about that. Israel and Palestine, Hamas against, and the wars that are going on in, in, a, in the Holy Land, as it is often called, makes us think of, is this the end? Makes us think of and wonder, is God coming back soon? And it's God's ordained plan, not mine, that we are in a passage today that will not answer one of those questions, but give us his answer to the larger question of the who, when, where, what, and why. Would you stand with me and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 17? Uh, This is page 605 in your paper pew Bible. Or if you're reading in Spanish, this is uh, page 1,447 in the Santa Biblia. And this is Luke 17. We're going to read verses 20 through 37. Beginning uh, Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that is Jesus, answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you desire, uh, when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There'll be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Verse 37, and they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we hear your word and we wonder, May it be clearly revealed through your servant and through your spirit. May we, as Kent prayed in his pastoral prayer, may your word do its work. It is that double-edged sword. It gets in where nothing else can. It brings about conviction to sin. It brings about confirmation of salvation, affirmation. It brings about comfort, lament. And we see you more clearly through your word. In fact, we cannot know you without your word, which reveals your son, our savior. And we pray for him to be glorified and all that we say and do today and this week. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. 
Our title for today's sermon is simply God's already and not yet kingdom. God's already and not yet kingdom. And our passage just very simply divides into two pieces. And if you have a bulletin and you're, you're new and you didn't know this, we have some uh, notes taking space in here. There's the already and there's the not yet. And that's, that's the gist of the passage. The already and the not yet. Well, I have to give the Pharisees credit where credit is due. Verse 20, they ask a good question. They ask a good question. Surely they were not the only Jews of the first century wondering, when will God come and make things anew, aright? Turn the, the, the world aright. And so they ask Jesus, when will the kingdom come? And Jesus responds, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. The, the language there is a little obscure in the Greek, but it's, it's this idea, it's, it's a very technical observation is what the, the Greek word here is used. It's the only, term, the only time it's used in the Bible, but in other Greek literature, it's the idea of being able to use uh, very technical means, graphs and charts to determine a precise location or date. And Jesus is saying very clearly, the kingdom of God is not coming in those types of observable ways. We will not be able to chart it, graph it, circle on a calendar, location, etc. It is not that clear. So he, he says, verse 21, people will not be able to say, look, here it is, or there. We won't have that knowledge. And in, and in fact, Matthew's gospel, which will not be up on your screen, but in verse 24, or chapter 24, verse 36, we find out that Jesus himself does not know the day and the hour. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Matthew 24, 36. And yet in Jesus' day and age, just as the Pharisees revealed, it was a popular question. It was a popular question. One, one scholar writes, attempts to calculate the arrival of the day of salvation were notoriously inconclusive even back then. Such attempts easily became obsessive and unhealthy as they subsequently have in our Christian faith, prompting one rabbi to declare in reaction, quote, whoever forecasts the world to come has no part in it, end quote. That's from a, a long dead rabbi. So even in our day and age, we have this still around us, don't we? We have, you, you just circle on YouTube, People who are saying this about and that and look at this and that. And Jesus is saying, beware, don't follow them. Now, positively, he says this, verse 21, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's how the ESV translated the old King James and NIV says something more like it is within you. So let's, let's figure out what he means here. Two different things, and we want to make sure we understand this. The second meaning is very popular for us today. It would be very appealing to say the kingdom of God is in you. Because we are, whether we realize it or not, very self-centered Western Westerners in the sense of Western European culture. We had our series, our topical series, what was it this summer, on the, the self on this very new idea of our self-governance, our, our idea that we are kind of self-governing, autonomous people and nobody can tell us what to do or why or when. Your truth, my truth, that type of thing. So it, it would sound appealing to say the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, but 
In the context, that means it has to be in, or I'm sorry, within you. If that's the case, then Jesus is talking about the Pharisees too. Again, if, if, if the Greek, if Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is within you, then he's talking to the Pharisees who are not following Jesus. So that cannot be the case. So the idea here is that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Luke chapter 9, <clears throat> Jesus refers to the kingdom of God at work. Luke chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 16, all references that Jesus makes to the kingdom being in their midst as seen by miracles, the healings, the acts that only God can do. But in short, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you because the king himself, Jesus, is right there in their midst. The Pharisees are asking, what is the king coming back to make everything right? And they're asking the king himself and they don't even get it. And now that rabbi's little quote makes a little sense, doesn't it? Whoever forecasts the world to come has no part in it. Sometimes we get so consumed about the end and what will happen that we miss Jesus right in front of us, just like the Pharisees. So the kingdom is already in our midst, is already in our midst, and specifically and most greatly in the, in the man Fully God, fully man, Jesus himself, the King of Kings. Verse 22 now moves us into the already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Verse 22, Jesus turns to his disciples. So it's as if the camera lens switches. And Jesus now, having answered the question to the Pharisees, you're not going to know the times and don't follow after people who say they do. But the kingdom is already in the midst of you. Here's his answer to the not yet part. Disciples, the days are coming, verse 22, when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there and look here. Do not go out or follow them. We'll unpack this part. What, what does the Son of Man here mean? The Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. Pull that up for me, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language, languages should serve him. The son of man, a ruler of all nations, of all peoples. The son of man, meaning of flesh like ours, but eternal. The son of man, friends, is Jesus. It's the title that he refers to himself more than any other in the gospels. Jesus is the son of man. And so Jesus, turning to his disciples, says, you're going to want to see the days of the son of man, right? And you will look, but you will not see it. So he's answered the Pharisees in a general sense, but he's looking at his people, his disciples, eye to eye. You're going to want to know when, when I'm coming back. You're not going to see it in that sense. You're not going to be able to predict it. People will still say, look here and look there. And church history is full of people saying this and being wrong. Do not, this is a command, do not go out or follow them. Jesus says to his disciples and Christians to you and to me, do not follow those who say he's coming here. He's coming there. Stop. They don't know. And they will lead you astray. Now, Jesus gives several illustrations to unpack this further. And as he's such a creative teacher, 
it's, it's wonderful how he clarifies some things here. Verse 24, lightning. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So he's anticipating our next question. Well, we'll, will we not recognize anything? No, you'll recognize when it's time. Like lightning across the sky, everyone will see the second coming. You just won't know when it happens. But first, and here's Jesus' one qualification, but first he, that is the son of man, that is himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Oh, how the disciples missed this then, and so, so would you and I. But then they realized it after the cross, didn't they? Jesus is not coming back until he makes things right at the cross and rises from the dead. The Son of Man <clears throat> must first suffer and be rejected by this generation. Fulfilling Isaiah's suffering servant in the later chapters of Isaiah 50. Then Jesus adds two Old Testament examples that all the disciples and the crowds who are around him as they're walking on their journey towards Jerusalem would know. Noah and then Lot. Let's look at Noah first. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when, the, when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Furthermore, <clears throat> likewise, verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot, this is Abraham's nephew, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Noah is a story we're all familiar with, the ark. Noah, only, Noah alone is revealed. God's going to do something cataclysmic. Here's how you make the ark. Get, get two of every kind of animal in there, Noah. And his family is the only remnant that is saved of all of God's image bearers on the earth. And it is a fascinating study, if you're interested in archaeology, of finding all the ways and anthropology, how many cultures have a flood story. Numerous cultures have flood stories that are thousands of years old. Archaeology finds fish in the strangest places, like on the top of mountains. Plenty of evidence to see the flood happened if we have eyes of faith. But what's Jesus' point here? Why does he bring up Noah? And then why does he bring up Lot? Well, one theme for sure is clear. They both were told God was going to pour out his wrath and were given an avenue of escape. They were saved. Noah and his family and Lot and his family. As we read in Genesis 19, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So you remember Abraham and Lot had separated. Lot was given the better fertile planting area down in the valley. And, and Abraham took the more mountainous and he could see the, the destruction, the absolute annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Lot escaped with his daughters, but not his wife. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. But before we get there, let's, let's make sure we understand again. Noah and Lot are used as illustrations here because they, they have been warned that something, that God's wrath is coming and then God saves them 
from his wrath, okay? For they are in a relationship of faith with him. Verse 31, on that day, Jesus unpacks, moving towards Lot's wife here. On that day, the day of judgment, the day that the son of man returns, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. So you can imagine you're on your housetop. It's a, it's a one-story building that you own or that you're renting or however, however it worked back then. And often people would sleep on the roof because it was cooler at night. And you see the, the signs, that, like that lightning in the sky, and you realize it, it's the day. Jesus is saying, don't go back inside and get your stuff. Don't, don't, don't turn around. Don't, don't think about what's being left behind. Keep your eyes on what's coming. And, and so too, he says, you, <clears throat> uh, you're in the field. Don't turn back. Don't go home and get your, get your stuff. It's all going to burn. Keep your eyes forward. Keep your eyes on what God has called you to do and who he is and who your faith is rooted in. In other words, remember Lot's wife. So they're, they're traveling, Lot and his family, out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot's wife turns around and she's turned to a pillar of salt. They were, the angels told them, don't look back. Keep your eyes going. Get out, get safe, get saved. But Lot's wife wanted what was behind her. She went back for the goods, for the stuff that she really loved. And she wasn't saved. Remember Lot's wife. And to us who are Gentiles, maybe we just need to hear it said in a different way. In verse 33, does that so well. Whoever seeks to preserve, whoever seeks to save his or her life will lose it. But whoever loses his or her life will keep it. Earlier, we remembered in Jesus, uh, earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus says the same thing with a slightly different nuance. Whoever loses it for my sake will save it. Clearly that's inferred here. If we turn or try to save ourselves, friends, hell is our eternal destiny. But if we lose our lives and in Christ find that he saves us, then we have hell, a heaven, heaven for all eternity. Verse 34 and 35, Jesus unpacks this idea one more time. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, this could be a reference to the rapture. I'm, I'm not convinced it is. It could be, so that, that's certainly not a wrong answer. But in the larger context here, it's clear Jesus is talking about imminent wrath coming and those of faith being saved and the rest being destroyed. So I think this is the idea he has here. It's either one or the other. One is taken, that is, to safety. The other is left to destruction. The two women grinding, one is taken and saved and the other is destroyed. Verse 37 seems puzzling. Let's read it together. And then we'll draw our sermon to a close with some application. And they, that is the disciples, said to Jesus, Where, Lord? 
Now, Jesus is a patient teacher, isn't he? He's just said, you're not going to know the details and don't follow those. Where, Lord? Do you feel like you're in a wanna or with your kids and you've just said, don't do this? And they say, but can I do this? And you go, did I not just say that? Right? <laughs> Maybe that's just my kids. Sorry, nobody else is laughing here. Where, Lord? But Jesus answers them with blood earnestness. Because even when, while we might chuckle a little bit, he wants them to know and to take it seriously. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Where? Well, you'll see the aftermath is his point. You'll see the aftermath. Look for the carrion birds. They'll be picking the carcasses. Why? Because Revelation 19. Turn there with me if you have your Bibles. <clears throat> Revelation 19 paints such a sobering picture. But one that we need to reckon with. One that we need <clears throat> to see. And I left off a couple verses, but we'll start in verse 11. This is Jesus, friends. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Notice those are capitalized, they're titles. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Okay, he's clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The next couple of verses go on to, to speak of the last battle, which is anything but epic in that there is instant, utter destruction. The armies against the Lord, the beast has captured the false prophet, thrown in the lake of fire. Verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It gets me emotional because I, there's a lot of people who are going to suffer and die and be in hell for all eternity. There's some of us in this room who are not taking God's offer of salvation through Jesus seriously. So I think when Jesus might have been tempted to roll his eyes, the disciples are asking him, where, Lord? He's thinking, perhaps of that day. And it isn't funny. There's nothing to laugh about, really. Because there will be destruction and God's perfect wrath poured out and the chance for salvation gone. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we all ready? And if, if you are, then... You're living ready for Jesus to come back anytime. You're 
You're worshiping him day in and day out, not perfectly, which means you're repenting of your sins regularly. You got your lamps trimmed, as Luke earlier tells us and Matthew reminds us. You're, you're ready for the master to return. You're, you're about his business. You're worshiping the Lord here at church and at home and in small groups and triads. Your lives are marked by holiness. There's no doubt, as others observe you, that you are different. You are marked. You are a servant of the Most High. You share your hope with others. You share the hope of the gospel with the lost. You realize this is no fantasy, but you realize that the reality is of what we just read, that Jesus is coming back and there will be a terrible wrath and an eternal consequence, that that is a far greater reality than houses, than cars, than jobs, than our very flesh. And you live for Jesus as best as you can with others around you because this life is not meant to be lived alone. It's impossible to be a Christian by yourself. Why would Jesus, the bridegroom, come back for his bride if you rejected the bride? Why would he come back for you, I should say? Now, maybe your answer is not yet, Pastor. I don't know. Well, let me remind you of some things you, you know, but you don't think about until I do a funeral and you're, or somebody else does a funeral. You're going to live maybe another day. I may live another couple hours. I could die tonight. I think I would be excited to be with Jesus, but say I had to leave my family. You may get 60 or 80 years. I, I feel the average is going up these days, I guess. Um, but do you know if you're going to be with the Lord Jesus for eternity? Have you been suckered into false teachers and preachers and prognosticators who have got you focused on something beyond, but you're missing Jesus right in front of you? Friends, the postmodern idea that we have, that we can just live and let live, is really unloving and untruthful. So I just want to clearly call you to think about your life. If your answer this morning is, I don't know, then don't waste time reckoning with your sin. Because let's make, let's make something clear here. Jesus is coming back to judge sin. And all of us are sinners. We are born rebels. And we will die the death of a rebel at the hand of a king without the king's son to save us. So, so the, the, the modern and maybe postmodern lies of we're just all good and, and, and it's just all love stuff. Friends, that stuff is hot garbage. It is going to lead you to hell. God cannot be both loving, or God has to be, I should say, both fully loving and fully just. And if you mess with one side of that airplane, it crashes and you no longer have a God, at least the God of the Bible, you have a God made after your own image. There will be a day of reckoning. You have no hope, no chance on your own. So don't buy into the other idea that is, I got to do more, I got to be more than I've done bad, and it will balance it out. Nope. God's holy. He demands holiness, perfection, and you and I are never, ever perfect. So friends, your only hope, my only hope, 
is Jesus. There's no other hope. That would be a fantasy. I thought about opening up with this illustration of my love for the book of the Lord of the Rings because it really gave me hope in a dark time in high school. And it gave me hope because it told a story that was outside of my reality. Things weren't good at home, parents divorcing, abusive father, all that stuff. But it gave me a hope of, of that good will one day conquer evil. And you know how a lot of fantasies build. Lord of the Rings is no exception. You have a catastrophe. It looks like everything is going to just be destroyed. Evil will conquer. And then there's what Tolkien himself calls the good catastrophe. Right? It's, it's Gollum holding up the ring and then falling. And in that fall, destroying that evil ring and good conquering evil. The day that we will celebrate in Good Friday is that day in the Bible. It's the good catastrophe. It seems that, that, that God's son is, is, has been trapped and he's going to be crucified and there will be no hope. And then the resurrection. And what was so dark, literally and physically and spiritually and emotional, is glorious beyond imagination. So, Friend, if your answer is not yet, I don't know. That's, that's your answer, Jesus. He took on the catastrophe, the wrath that you and you and you and I have earned. And he's paid for it. And he's risen to give you and you and you and any who would believe in him eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we pray, I pray, specifically that through your spirit, you would do a work in every heart here. One, to encourage us who are in you and your son to bolster our faith, faith to, to convict us of our sins that are tripping us up, as Hebrews says, to do the work that you know I need in my own heart over the fear of man and how that trips me up so much because I don't fear you instead. Do your work in, in your saints. We're not perfect. You are Jesus, but your spirit does the work of getting the scalpel, the surgeon's knife and cutting out the hard spots and bringing healing there. And, and Lord, I pray as well that your spirit would bring about the miracle of regeneration, that you would take hard hearts in this room, at home, watching this online later, that you would do that work of a heart that is dead and bringing it back to life, shocking it into salvation bringing about a recognition that we are sinners and that we have only one hope and that is you, Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, I pray for those today that would believe in your gospel, that would lay their life, lose their lives for your sake, Jesus, that then you would give this church as a means to assure them of their salvation and to encourage them into good works. And last but not least, send us this week with boldness, with love and truth, not fearing rejection, but rather having in our mind's eye Revelation 19 and not wanting any to suffer for all eternity. When we could share with them, give us that heart that you have, Lord, Father God, to send your son and thereby send us as his emissaries. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.